I Ran the Bank is a podcast hosted by Clayton Weir, co-founder and head of product and strategy at Fispan, a fintech that is enabling banks to provide contextualized, consumer-like experiences to their business clients. Clayton is a thought leader in financial innovation and hits on the hottest topics in banking, finance, and the future of payments. And he wants to know, if you ran the bank, what's the one thing you'd go all in on? Please tune in to Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. And now, here's your host, Clayton Weir. Hey, everyone. Welcome to another episode of If I Ran the Bank. Today, we're super lucky to have Melissa Widner as our guest. She's joining from the lovely and almost certainly sunnier than here, Sydney, Australia. The reason I invited her was she just finished up a tour of duty working as a venture, a corporate venture capitalist for one of the largest financial institutions in Australia, National Australia Bank, or NAB. Since then, Melissa's jumped ship to become the CEO of a super interesting company called Lighter Capital that has an alternative financing product for SaaS-style businesses. I think between those two different stops, there's lots of interesting things to dive into around the future of how banks are innovating, where they're making their bets and investments on innovation, and also some of the white space opportunities that are left in how we capitalize different uh, different types of companies. Um, I'll stop there and uh, throw it over to you, Melissa. Um, well, thanks, Clayton, for having me here. Um, I have uh, known Fispan for several years now. Um, I think I first came across them when I was um, the managing director of NAB's National Australia Bank's Venture Fund and came across your CEO, Lisa, and I'm I'm a big fan of the the company. So it's just great to see your continued growth. I consider myself first and foremost an entrepreneur. Before I went into venture capital, I ran a couple companies. I was the founder and CEO of an enterprise software company called Seven Software. that was out of the valley and it was acquired by a Seattle company called Concur Technologies. Um, And shortly after that acquisition, I started a career in BC in the US and then moved to Australia about 12 years ago. And when NAB um, was starting a venture fund, I went in um, with my partner, Todd Forrest, my work partner to get that going. So I did that for five years, um, which was great spending time in a large corporate um, and getting a fund going there. And one of our investments was a company called Lighter Capital. And it's an investment that I made while I was at the bank. And I went onto their board. And um, last year, when um, we needed to replace the CEO, I was such a big fan of the company and um, you know had a real vision for where else it could go that I threw my hat in the ring and decided to get back, get back on the tools, as they say in Australia. And and get back into the operating side. Our CEO, my my partner Lisa, has uh, spent spent seven or eight years at some point in Australia, and the amount of bizarre aphorisms that she has has taken from that life experience are I- invaluable. I would say, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's a different, a little bit, a different language. Yeah, no, they have a, they they really know how to coin a phrase. So, um, so so on that note, let's maybe start there and unpack that. So, I mean, I think your journey as a you know a bank venture capitalist probably you know kind of really closely mapped to the overall sort of fintech and disruption hype cycle, right? And so, if you kind of go back to you know twenty fourteen, fifteen, sixteen was sort of peak. Um, you know, oh, when's banking going to have its blockbuster moment? We need to digitize and have innovation programs and BVCs and do all of these things. I think the, t- the tenor of that's all changed, but you maybe want to take us back to the time and like what, you know, what, 
Why, why would a bank want to be a venture capitalist? Well, um, different banks have different reasons for, and, and different corporates have different reasons for starting up venture firms. Um, at NAB, it was started by our previous CEO, Andrew Thorburn, who um, really wanted to create a vehicle that would ultimately um, help bring a stronger culture of innovation to the bank. So banks are actually quite innovative. And in Australia, I would say the banks are even more innovative than um, in the U.S. in some ways. Just It's probably easier to innovate in a, in a smaller market and when there's fewer banks. But, um, the, it, you know, they're not, they don't obviously move quickly like startups do. And it's a, it, it's a different mentality. So I think one of the reasons was to bring, you know, to sort of slowly shift the culture by um, exposure to some of these interesting companies. And when I think about what we did and at NAB Ventures, we would invest really for three reasons. Um, one, first and foremost, it would be partnership opportunities. So, and that was really the reason for investing in <clears throat> Lighter Capital. So Lighter Capital is a company that's been around for a decade. Um, we're the pioneer and leader in this revenue-based finance for SaaS company. So, <clears throat> excuse me, we're allowed to, we, we're able to get in pretty early to, um, to help provide these companies with growth capital when, you know, there's banks aren't going to lend to them because they're not profitable. You know, they're not going to offer a personal guarantee or their house. So they don't have a lot of options for, for growth capital. Um, and a lot of times our companies are even too early for venture or they don't want venture. They might want venture eventually, but, um, no, they're not ready for it at that time. So the reason NAB made an investment to Lighter, which is really illustrative of, you know, one of the reasons that NAB set up its venture firm was in order to get closer to these companies that they really wanted to bank and have relationships with as they grew, but that didn't necessarily have a differentiated product to offer at that early stage. So um, you know, some of the uh, big Australian tech success stories are Atlassian and Canva. So when NAB thinks about um, you know, why we made the investment in Lighter and why NAP has a partnership with Lighter, um, it was to, you know, how do we engage with the companies like Atlassian and Canva at the at their early stage and how do we provide them real value? And a lot of times the value companies need the most at that early stage is capital. So that's one reason banks partner are one, one of the reasons that the venture firm was formed. And another reason is just to get insights into what's going on in the market. You know, where could we potentially be disrupted? Um, one of our a, a company that I did the investment in is a San Francisco company called Beam that does cross-border payments. Um, it facilitates cross-border payments. And, you know, this isn't something that NAB does and other banks do. Uh, for businesses, frankly, it's a clunky process. I mean, if you do a lot of it and you're set up, it's pretty simple. But if you're just a small business that wants to pay an invoice to an overseas um, uh, partner, it's it can be quite cumbersome and expensive. And being set up something that made it really simple. So that was an investment where um, the bank was looking for, you know, let's let's look to invest in companies that are potentially going to disrupt us. Um, and so those are those are really the broad categories in terms of um, you know why NAB set up the venture fund. Totally makes sense. And was there you know was it part of your mandate to was it just generally what was interesting or were you trying to spread you know these 
ideas or opportunities around the different lines of business that the bank was in, or had they just curated kind of the biggest pain points regardless of what it was? And Or I just how do you kind of set up your thesis that way and align it to the operating business? Yeah, yeah, no, that's that's something that we spend a lot of time on um, in terms of because, uh, you know, a, a bank, as you know, is uh, and what a bank does is so broad. So where do you start and where do you focus and, um, you know, how deliberate are you versus reactionary? So we did look at specific areas. I mean, another area that was um, one of importance was and we and NAB has three investments in the space right now is um, in cybersecurity. And that's obviously very important for a bank, um, probably you know as important for a bank or more important for a bank than almost any other institution. So that was that was an area where it we were, you know, we used the venture fund to invest primarily in companies that we were already a customer or were going to become a customer of with the thesis that by having that closer relationship through an investment, um, you know, we'll really be on the forefront of what's going on in this space. It would help, you know, uh, protect the bank and its customers. But in terms of prioritization, you know, if you look at where a bank makes most of its money, where now makes most of its money, it's in lending and specifically in mortgages and small business lending in NAB's case. So anything in that space was of interest to us, um, anything that could bring you know, a, a better experience for our customers. For NAB's, I keep saying our, even though I'm at lighter now, for NAB's customers in that space um, was was interest of interest and NAB's portfolio is filled with companies uh, that are you know, in or around that alternative lending space. Totally makes sense. And the one of the other deals you guys did that I, I mean it was on my radar always because it was a Canadian company that was Wave and and which I guess for people who don't know is a you know really big kind of small and and micro business accounting platform. Yeah, great yeah, really, really neat business. And I, I could maybe walk me through that, but I, I think obviously probably part of that is, and I think part of, you know, it's really interesting who ultimately bought that company. I think it would have been inobvious if you weren't thinking about it in advance. It's obvious after the fact, but that, I mean, that's probably been an example, right. Of, of making, you know, the, how important, I guess, the, the system of record is to ultimately probably some of this credit underwriting to the small business. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, uh, you know, uh, we invested in WAVE in 2017. Um, and unfortunately, fortunately for all the shareholders, including NAB, they were acquired by H&R Block a couple of years later, but, you know, acquired too early for us to really leverage that investment from a partnership standpoint. But, you know, WAVE's a great company in terms of, um, you know, the leader for that micro, you know, micro accounting space um, and why, you know, anything in that space is interesting to banks is when you think about what a bank does and what we do at Lighter is, you know, we take um, data and then we make credit decisions based on that data. And a lot of that data resides in uh, the accounting platform. So, you know, there, there really shouldn't be a step of a company having to provide that data to a lending institution. The lending institution should be able to connect into that data and, you know, let companies know in real time what they qualify for. And that's that's really what LIDAR has done. Um, you know, we, we can uh, deploy capital very quickly 
we um, connect to banking and accounting data. And based on our, you know, based on our long history of lending in this area, we can, we can, you know, get capital out the door in a couple weeks without an onerous application process for the customer. So that's maybe a great point of transition then. And I think it fits really well into a couple of the themes we've talked about this, this show, right? So obviously, I mean, data is the life source of, of so many industries now and of so many, the ability to service the customer is kind of dependent on access to data on, on so many verticals. So I think it's especially obviously true of providing credit um, and capital. But um, this is the interesting thing that I think it's, it's you know, we're, banks have sort of gotten left behind a little bit. It's just the, the nature of business has changed so much over the last 20 years, right? And you're much more likely to be in e-commerce and, and realistically the equivalent of, you know, if you were a small business making your nightly bag deposit out of the till into your bank, um, the point of entry is really something more like your Stripe account today, right? Or Shopify, like that's where the, the flow of funds comes in. It doesn't even touch your bank. And so it's it's really interesting as the cadence of those businesses have changed and, and everything, The in a lot of ways, the financing tools that incumbent banks make available to small businesses seem less and less fit, fit for purpose over time. So I don't know if you kind of maybe walk us through that from your perspective and maybe touch on, you know, where lighter, you know, fits in that chain, but, you know, can, can you maybe describe that chasm or that gap and and some of the ways that you know, some of the different sources of, of capital or some of the people trying to solve this problem are? Yeah. And just in our, is the question sort of specifically where we're, how we're getting our data. And I mean, I, there's a, there's a couple things in there, but I, I can, I can talk about one thing that has changed um, really even in the last few years, in, uh, you know, Lighter started doing, Lighter has been around a little over a decade and really started SaaS lending in about 2012. And if you go back even sort of three or four years ago, um, we would have to have, we, we need to get the banking and accounting data um, to make credit decisions. And it would take um, a few phone calls and, and time with the customer before they trusted us to provide that information. And where, where things really change now is um, in the very first, oftentimes before there's any human interaction at all, companies will connect us directly to these data sources and we can come back with a credit with a credit decision. And that's something that a few years ago companies were very reluctant to do, but that's become much more the norm. I think people understand that, you know, this is being done in a secure and protected way. And also, and it probably has to do with Lighter's reputation. You know, as Lighter builds its reputation and credibility, there's more trust there. But it, it's really quite a difference in terms of companies' willingness to open up those the data to to lenders and other other third parties and partners. That totally makes sense. And I, I think that that's something that maybe gets lost is that, you know, the, of all the things that sort of change in terms of societal attitudes and beliefs is that now that as a small business owner or whomever, you're so used to that idea of, you know, making this little OAuth connection between your, you know, the 10 different SaaS applications that you use that that idea of how that data gets exchanged is just you don't even thinking about it, right? In some ways, you're maybe even desensitized to whatever the risk may or may not be of sharing. Like, you're way more ready to do that than maybe like a legacy institution is to receive that data from you. Yeah, and look, the CEO of a um, seed pre-Series A company is the most time poor person on the planet, probably. So, 
anything you can do to um, expedite, you know, the the process. And their and their job is not to, you know, fill out loan applications. You know, their job is to run their business and get more customers. So we are really focused on. And I've been um, at the helm at Lighter for a little over six months now, but one of our big focus areas is just making sure we're not spending a second of our customers or our potential customers' time that we don't have to. And that means making the application process super simple, not asking any questions that we get from data, never asking them the same question twice, um, getting back to them quickly, and making sure we're, at, we're not asking them questions that we don't really need to make um, our our. Uh, loan decisions. So, you know, we would, uh, you know, we're at a point where we can deploy capital really quickly once we have all the data. And so we're just focused on how do we get that, you know, how do we get that data quickly and make it as painless as possible for the customers to give us that data. And that's an area where banks um, are just going to be slower to to um, catch up. And, you know, it just takes longer to get things like that done. And I know that from sitting in, in NAB, you know, NAB's filled with very smart strategic leaders, um, but there's just a big bureaucracy to cut through to get changes made. Everybody knows, every, people seem to be um, agreed upon the direction that, that, it, that the bank needs to go. It just takes a lot longer, you know, to get those types of things done. So of the two things that I think are or like as a kind of as a dummy listing from the outside, and I think are unique about your business and your approach. Um, one is I think the speed of underwriting, right? Like being able to get to a decision really quickly. And then two is probably just being able to understand a pattern or a cadence of businesses that a legacy financial institution just wouldn't, it wouldn't make sense, right? How you run your business wouldn't look right in their models. Those seem like the two most important things. Um, is that, is that accurate? Like, is that, Kind of painting the whole picture of um yeah well especially i mean our our um area of expertise is SaaS companies so we have um deployed over 200 million dollars have done over 800 loans and have looked at data from thousands of companies so we were able to um you know our product we didn't really get a chance to talk about our product but the product is is such a great product i mean as an entrepreneur and as a venture capitalist um i uh, you know have such appreciation for it which is one of the reasons i was excited to join this company but the revenue based loan is a loan where um the company takes say a dollar from us and they're going to pay us back uh, a fixed amount but it's typically around a dollar 30 or a dollar 40 and we model that that payback will happen over three years. Um, and they're paying us a fixed percentage of their revenue um, until they pay back that amount. So they're never paying, they know exactly what they're going to pay back. They're you know, going to pay back whether it's $1.30 or $1.40 or $1.50, depending on the risk profile. Um, and we model for that to be paid back over three years. So what our credit decisioning um, tool does is it, forecast the company's revenue. Because if we're saying, okay, you're going to pay us back 5% of your revenue, we're modeling this to be paid back over three years. You know, we're forecasting what we think the revenue is going to be. We never get that exactly right. We're always over or under, but but we've done a pretty good job. We're, we're a lot better at forecasting customers' revenues than they are. And that's because, you know, entrepreneurs are generally like me, they're optimists. So um, generally forecast a little higher. But um, 
so so the reason it's such a great product is that um, if the company grows a lot faster than they anticipated or we anticipated, we get paid back faster. The company doesn't pay us back any more money. They're still paying us back a dollar thirty or a dollar forty, but they're paying us back faster, and our IRR is higher. And you know that's how we make our profit. We make our profit on the spread between our cost of capital and um, our effective rate. And if the company grows slower, then our IRR is lower. Um, so our interest is just perfectly aligned with the customers. You know, we do better when they do better. It doesn't cost them any more money. You know, it's and, and they're happy if they're paying the money back in a shorter amount of time. That's fine because that means they had way more money than they had thought they were going to have because their revenues grew so quickly. Um, and if they, if you know, if they fall on tough times, then they don't have this onerous loan burden. So we have, um, we went through COVID and knock on wood, we didn't lose a single one of our portfolio companies. They've, they've all survived so far. Um, but we had a couple, we had a few in spaces that were very hard hit. So we had ones in event planning and ticketing, travel. And as you can imagine, you know, their, their revenues really contracted um, when COVID hit. Um, so, but the amount that they pay us every month went down as well. So, you know, we have some companies that are paying us 90% less than they were a year ago on a monthly basis because their revenue is 90% less than they were a year ago. So we're never an onerous burden. You know, there's never this loan, you know, payment that you have to make that's going to put pressure on the company. So it's, it's just, it, it's such a great, you know, perfectly aligned product. I wish I had thought of it. <laughs> I can't take credit, but <laughs> it, it totally makes sense. And so if you play this out, right, as you kind of have a specialist product that's like highly aligned to a certain, you know, business with a certain kind of cadence that kind of flow and a certain life cycle. And I think there's multiple of these, right? You know, there's, uh, you know, you start to cast a broader swath and you think of ClearBank or, you know, what Shopify does in this space or what Square does is you have all these people that A, have, so I think I said two things. I think there's three things here, right? One is quick underwriting, two is access to proprietary data, and three is some general deep understanding of like the, you know, the cadence of a specific type of business. And so like that pattern is replicating with these people that really understand e-com or, you know, um, physical retail or whatever it is and have sort of privileged data access, right? So it's, it just seems that that model is going to propagate itself multiple times, but it's, it's interesting because it's the exact opposite of how banks work. Whereas this is inherently sort of verticalized to make that model work, right? There's a certain type of data access, there's a certain type of knowledge, certain type of product design. Whereas like, you know, small business bank lending was very, very horizontal offering realistically. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, and, and that's the thing that um, at, at NAB, uh, they started a couple <clears throat> divisions of bankers to focus on emerging tech companies and there's an e-commerce team. So so you do have bankers that are, are, are specialized, you know, specializing in specific verticals. Um, NAB's also a big ag bank, the, the largest um, agricultural bank in Australia. But um, the products aren't differentiated. So the banker's knowledge is differentiated because they're working on, you know, this specific vertical, but the, the, the lending products haven't, you know, caught up there. No, that, that, I think that makes sense. And I, I mean, that's, it's easy to do that, right, to put, put a verticalized thing. And I, I had a little bit of earlier life experience myself. I worked at Farm Credit Canada. So that's the, oh, great, the, yeah. 
Yeah, when I was in university. So that was, I mean, and that was it. They had to go a level deeper, right? To specifically yeah. do ag, Eglin and stuff. I get that. So, I mean, on that note, and I guess the simple answer is, well, like change the product and change the technology. But if you were sitting on the bank side of things, right? Like how do you, you know, sort of modernize, like what would your vision be for kind of modernizing a, a portfolio of creditor financing products that you think are, you know, better fit for purpose of, of how the world's going to be, you know, where the puck is going? Yeah, so one of the things that should be low-hanging fruit, and it, it was for us at Lighter, is just the front-end customer experience. So, um, you know, I look at one of uh, um, our portfolio companies, or one of NAB's portfolio companies is a, a mortgage company, a company that provides mortgages called Athena. It was actually founded by two ex-NAB people. And, and you know, the banks should be the best at mortgages, right? They have the lowest cost of capital. They have the most data. Nobody should be able to eat their lunch in that department. And and really what Athena has done is they've just made the process so much simpler for customers. So that front end piece is something that um, it always surprises me how it, it really does surprise me how banks don't. You know, they, that's that's not something they do well. They spend a lot of time on it. They spend a lot of time on customer journeys. But I think it's because they're looking at it as such a um, a piece of such a broader, uh, you know, broader set of things that needs to happen before they can even implement that front end piece. Um, they're just going to be slow to catch up there. And that's something that you know, customer experience is just key, and it's got to it's got to be. Fast, you've got to not be wasting time, and I think I, I think that's something that there that banks in general just don't pay enough attention to. So if I were running the bank, I would make that a priority, and I would I would say let's fix let's let's the back end is really important as well, but the customers don't see the back end, so let's at least get that front end fixed, and we can fix the back end um, once you know we can fix the back end at our leisure. Yeah, no, I mean, you can Wizard of Oz the experience for the user, even exactly. if it's still... Yeah, because the customer doesn't care as long as they're getting their cash quickly and it's not taking a lot of their time. I like that Wizard of Oz. That's a good one. <laughs> that totally makes sense. Um, on this, on that side, I mean, on the small business side, do you think it? Do you think for the banks to verticalize small business credit products makes sense, right? Like, is it is would it ever make sense for a bank to do that, to have something that was specific to SaaS companies or specific to marketplaces or e-commerce companies or, or things like that? Yeah, it absolutely makes sense, but it would be hard to do. Um, and that's, I think that's why when we look at, um, you know, NAB here in Australia and we partner with Silicon Valley Bank in, um, in the, in the U S why NAB's partnered with lighter, because they really want to have relationships with these high growth early stage tech companies, but they don't have a product. And if if the bank is looking at verticalizing, if you know this would probably be low on the list just because of the size. So you know they'd start with ag, like they do have a vertical focus in ag. They've got a vertical focus in health, and you know when you just think about overall size, pretty far down. So I think partnership is is um you know is a good strategy in terms of uh, being able to offer something to specific verticals. Just putting your investor hat back on for a second, and obviously you still probably see lots of quite unique deal flow through lighter capital funnel. What can you maybe give us a space, maybe tangential to this, that 
you know, a fintech kind of category you're still really excited in, you know, would, would be eager to invest in something and maybe something on the other side of the coin that you think is a little bit overhyped when it comes to sort of fintech and, and startups? You mean another vertical space beyond SaaS? Sorry, I just mean something not related to, you know, lending, I guess. In fintech. Okay. Yeah. Oh, gosh, there are so many areas at NAB. I think... Um, uh, there's still a lot to be done in the real estate space. Um, you know, one of our, one of NAB's portfolio companies is a company called Amitry that has a email AI assistant specifically for real estate agents. Um, that's just a fantastic product. So that was something that um, is very interesting because when you think of where banks, you know, banks make a lot of their cash profits are from mortgages. So anything in and around the real estate space is really interesting. And there's a lot of um, opportunity for improvement and automation there. And within real estate, there's so many different verticals. There's, you know, property management. There, I mean, there's uh, um, just even why in the U.S. are you still paying 5 to 6% commission um, when you have perfect information now compared to, you know, 20 years ago when there wasn't, you know, 25 years ago when, you needed a real estate agent to show you what even was for sale. You know, why Why have commission rates, they've dropped a little, but they really haven't come down that much. And it actually, I guess it's another, um, whenever you get de-quarantined and, and, and get back to Seattle, I guess it's, I mean, Zillow has obviously done some really interesting things in that space just around with, with their eye buying. Seems like we're kind of in the earliest chapters of real estate maybe getting like, it's obvious how it should work. It just seems like we're always 10 years away from it working the way it should. Yeah, I remember talking with the founder of Redfin early on when I was venture capitalist in Seattle. I don't know, maybe it was 2002 or 2003. And, you know, it's surprising. I mean, Redfin's done really well, but, you know, their the whole thesis was, you know, that it, it was going to displace the broker. And real estate commissions were going to come down significantly, and and it's it's become more of a tool for brokers, um, and we haven't seen that seen that change radically. So you know, will we still be talking about this ten years from now? Almost certainly, and it and it's weird. And I mean, I don't know the numbers, but like to some extent, it seems to me that like the robo advisor type products have done a better job of attracting capital to them that like people like that. I would have thought that that was like, Oh no, there needs to be a human involved. Right. Like I don't want the robot to set my portfolio, but it, that seems to people be open-minded on that, but still want a human to pay 4% to in the middle of the real estate transaction. It's very bizarre. Yeah, absolutely. And, and trading platforms like Robinhood, which I know has gotten a lot of bad press lately, but one of them, uh, NABSC, uh, investments is in a company called Stash, which is, I don't know if you're familiar with Stash, but that's a great product you can get on and do fractional share um, investing. And it, it, they have a product that, um, they have a debit card that every time you spend um, at a public company with a debit card, you actually get shares in that company. So um, what it does is, uh, you know, not only does it um, foster a greater alignment between the customer and the vendor, but it's actually starting, you know, it's getting people to become investors much earlier than they normally would or getting even a whole different um, class of investors that might never become equity investors um, to, to, you know, to become educated on how to do so. I, I did see them present at Finnovate once. And it was one of the few times in my life where I was like, 
that idea is just beyond obvious. Like it oh, just it's such a great company. Yeah. <laughs> I chased that one for three years before we did the the investment at NAB. Yeah. No, it, it it just it has a lot, you know, a lot going for it. I think a lot of interesting things in just terms of the way, as you said, it folds, you know, folds people in as equity investors earlier. I think it it's actually really interesting that businesses had that that hasn't ever been a thing like trying to convert the idea of a loyalty program into actually being a shareholder. I, I just I fathom I can't fathom how many interesting ramifications there are of that of the affinity that it actually creates and connection to brands and stuff. But yeah, absolutely. Um, and another uh, um, one of our investments, one of NAB's investments, is into a company that called Slip that does digital receipts. And that might sound super simple, but there's so much more that can be done when it comes to loyalty, um, warranties around that space. So that's something where when you buy um, when you buy something, instead of on your on your um, on your uh, credit card statement or your debit card statement, instead of just seeing the name of the vendor and the amount, you'll actually see line item detail. And, you know, that's super useful. I mean, the, the biggest use for the bank is just that um, the bank spends, I think, is literally millions of dollars um, handling phone calls from people who, you know, think this wasn't a charge that they made because they can't remember. They can't, you know, they see a charge from some vendor and they can't remember ever going there. But when you put the line item in there, they remember. But then, you know, it gets into, you know, in terms of being able to provide, you um, loyalty programs, um, provide data um, to consumers on their spending at a, at a much more granular level. You know, there's so much that can be done in that area. And, and I think Slip now has investment from all the four, the four large banks in Australia. No, I thought that was a really neat idea as well. And it, I mean, I think it just creates a circle of life conversation right around the data that exchanges between the 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 merchant and the the customer and 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 the bank I guess in this case and I think it's I think that's going to be the next phase of being like buy now pay later as well is because it's been a merchant only experience mostly and now it's going to be a bit more of a you know there's some people trying to do it on the card side as well and I think that's going to be a little bit of a push and pull right of who want, who you know who kind of owns the relationship whether it's on the merchant side or the the, the issuer side as well. So it, I think that's all going to kind of blend together. Awesome. Well, why don't we wrap on that note? I mean, I really appreciate the conversation. I think that all these are important themes in mean, both how banks kind of are choosing to, you know, invest and evolve themselves and innovate and do that. But also I think fundamentally the nature of how we finance businesses is, is changing and probably will continue to change quite a bit. And I just think that that's something that's really interesting. So I really appreciate you taking the time to kind of share your thoughts on both of those. Yeah, it was great to be here. Thanks so much for having me. Awesome. Thanks again. Thanks everyone for listening. As always, we appreciate it. Um, if it's your first time listening, you know, feel free to subscribe on Apple, Spotify, um, anywhere you get your podcasts and uh, never hesitate to send us a note at uh, info at fivespan.com if you have any comments, questions, or concerns, or maybe you want to be a guest. Thanks for listening.